says uh, Restream is broadcasting. Now I'm just waiting for it to hit YouTube, and there it goes. We are live. Imagine that. Ten, ten months and a week later, Steve and I are back. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's been a nice break from it all. Um, just watching all the stuff stupid going on uh you know steve and i are, are gonna do our best to keep things pc because they've been looking for any reason to censor and shut down anybody about anything so we figured you know dead sea scrolls is a good enough topic everybody can watch the uh media and what's come out today about the goings-on over the last year and a half and i you know it, it's you know it's all you can do is say told you so because what did they do they called us conspiracy theorists and other name calling nonsense for a, a what a, a year and nine months so now it's all starting to come full circle but uh here we are we're back welcome steve welcome yourself it's been a long time yeah we've been talking we've been talking in between and discussing stuff and but nothing on the air, really. Yeah, well, you and I speak almost uh, every week, probably, or more. Yeah, if not more. So, yeah. But uh, we've kept all of these these people out in the world in the in the dark for the last nearly year. So we got to remember where we left off. Yep. And uh, let's see. I wonder if it showed up on uh, Facebook. It doesn't look like my broadcast is streaming to Facebook, though. Nope. Of course not. Huh. Well, that's an issue. I wonder what happened there. I'll have to uh, figure something out later, but it's supposed to be streaming over there. I, I haven't even logged into Twitter in a year. I hate Twitter. So, uh, Steve, what all have you discovered in the last year? More you than me. I've kind of just followed what you were working on. Well, we probably should pick up where we... The last thing we were talking about was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the basis of the book I wrote was not precisely about the scrolls, but all the intrigue that led up to them and how there was a lot of dubious kind of claims going on. Uh, the most significant claim was that Jules Isaac wrote a book called Jesus and Israel, which was really the the backbone of what ended up in Vatican II. But a lot of this stuff has disappeared. You can't find it. You go into the Google documents, for instance, uh, for such a weighty text, there's no references to it at all. You can't download it. You can't see it or anywhere. So the, the, the interesting thing about the, that was Jesus and Israel was really written before the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the writer, Jules Isaac, actually refers to the, possibly finding uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls before anybody knew about them. Yeah. That intrigued me, and that prodded me to write the book. But that, I I kind of left the book. You know, when you, when you write books like this, one of the things you're trying to do is beat everybody else to the punch because you don't know who's thinking about what. So there's a lot of things that were left untied up which i've been looking at for the last year and uh you had come across 
documents that essentially, so the CIA was founded on uh, June 26th, 1947. And then on three days later, on June 29th, 1947, they held a conference in Seelisburg, Switzerland. What was that about? Well, we didn't we didn't know that that was the fact at the time. What we knew at the time of my writing the book was that all the key players to Vatican II, uh, what, what I should lead up to Vatican II, but to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was preliminary meetings before all this went down, which was always kind of a suspicious thing. Why? What are they discussing? Why are they doing it? And so there's a conference called the Seelisberg Conference, and in Switzerland, as much as I wanted to research the book, I could not find much reference at all to this conference. And even though I went ahead and published the book, I was still not, it, it didn't sit well with me that I couldn't find more on Seelisburg. So in the past year, I've been looking and looking and looking for a reference. What I did find one day, which I, is I actually found the program, uh, I don't know if I can hold this up if people can see that or not. Yeah, they should be able to see that. All right. This was the actual program that was handed out or documented the whole thing. And it goes into the theology. It goes into that they're going to try to create the Catholic Church and the Jews are trying to create a commission whereby they can get past the Holocaust and solve all, you know, solve the problems between Catholicism and Judaism. But when I opened up the first page, it gives a table of contents. And again, I don't know if that's visible or not. Not too much. Okay. So what I, on the bottom of the table, you know, it's basically the second page of the document. It has a sponsorship stamp by a group called the Fraternity Mondial. And underneath it, it has, in parentheses, World Brotherhood. Uh, now you go through this and... You try to say, well, what's, what was that? The, the, there was a, if you look at the, the attendance, there's like normal people, but there's always kind of oddball people that you, you wonder why, what would they have to do it? Some had Marxist connections, some were just Catholic priests, some were, you know, Jewish rabbis and things like that. But there were people that had, they, they, they didn't really have a notoriety in that type of thing. So what I instantly tried to do is I tried to look up, well, what's the World Brotherhood? And I came across this document yep. as part of a FOIA request. And what it says is it's basically written to uh, Alan Dulles of the CIA by Everett R. Glinchy who actually ended up being one of the attendants at the Seelisburg conference. And I'm going so to show that from the database up on screen here. Okay. And, you know, for those who don't know, if you go to the database on the Logos Media website, the brain link is up at the top of the website. But if you just type in Seelisburg or Seelisburg conference, these will come up and you can uh, find these uh, documents up here on the uh, – the database so here's the first one that steve was just showing and you can go through it and here's the table of contents so people can see that now and uh, right now we're talking about everett r clinchy right 
who had, who was to in all fairness, he was working on uh, some sort of amical solution even before the war between the Jews and the Christians and stuff like that. But obviously going into all this, he, he had CIA connections. And so the question is, now that you can kind of show that these are fabricated, uh, I, it, it's hard to call them whether they're a hoax or what they are, because what's happening here is, I, as we've talked about, I think most of, this, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls have some basis and authenticity. It's how are they dated and what era are they from? And were they mixed with other papers trying to prove something else? One of the, one of the people that, that was part of this Seelisberg conference had connections, was a brother or a son-in-law, I believe, of Moses Gaster. So when you go into all this, all the original Jewish scholars, one, the main ones, Solomon Zeitlin, said these papers, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls have this odd feeling like they're from a thing called the uh uh it, it's a it's a group of papers in egypt where um it, it is a collection that ended up in the rise in the john risen uh, library and you're you're, uh, you're talking about the cairo Geniza scroll yeah exactly thank you and what happened is that the person that was actually representing the jews at the conference was a son-in-law of Moses Gaster. And so everybody was trying to figure out everything I've read is what is the connection? How would the Dead Sea Scrolls end up with documents from the Cairo Geniza? The thing is, is that Moses Gaster owned them all at that point in time. He had them stashed in London during World War II. The, they were bo accidentally bombed by the Germans and, and there was a huge fire most of them weren't destroyed, but Moses Gaster had actually hired scribes to duplicate some of these documents. So now you have an oddball connection between the CIA and a connection to somebody could, who could have easily, you know, uh, fabricated some of these documents. So now when you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, I've just been, we, when we decided we were going to do this broadcast, I started looking into some of this again, to refresh my memory, the, the main document that we're talking about, it, it, the entire Dead Sea Scrolls are presented as if they had somehow invalidated Christian history in that the, what they were trying to prove, Jules Isaac was trying to prove from the beginning, is that Christianity was not an Orthodox religion to begin with. It was a Gnostic religion to begin with. That's what he had predicted. Uh, several other writers had predicted similar type things. But it, the only thing, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, that actually predicts such a thing is the, called the War Scroll. The War Scroll talks about a war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Now, and if you read it, it's just a war thing. It's a war, uh, you know, just to read the first sentence, for the instructor, the rule of the war, the first attack of the sons of light, shall be undertaken against the forces of the sons of darkness, the army of Belial, the troops of Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, the Amalekites. And it goes on, and it's just war strategies and war things like that. That was presented as if it was a Gnostic thing because it was dualistic. It had light and dark and that kind of thing. Right. 
the problem, and I know you've been into the Gnostic things yourself. It doesn't read to me like a Gnostic text at all. Uh, I don't know if I should go into reading another Gnostic text, but the, the, the one that probably is most Gnostic is the Corpus Hermeticum. Yeah. And if you read into it, the Corpus Hermeticum is actually a perversion of the beginning of, of John's gospel. So when you hear about darkness and light, it has all these things have kind of a mystical quality to it that are leading to this concept of the one mind or the one, you know, the one emerged that somehow some mind meld with God or something like that. Uh, it, it's, they're not war documents at all. So what you, I don't know if many people probably don't research things like this, but as you go through history, you can kind of look at different other frauds through history. And usually there's something anachronistic about them, something, some detail out of place, some detail out of time. Uh, I, people know now that the, de that the uh, flat earth thing was kind of a hoax of the 1800. Nobody believed the earth was flat, you know, and that was actually pushed pushed in the 1800s, but there's other things that go back. Uh, for example, there was the donation of Constantine. That was, it was considered a document whereby the, cap, the, the emperor of uh, the Byzantine emperor, Constantine, divided the world up into the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Well, about, I think it was about 1343 or so, uh, Lorenzo Valla declared that the, that the document itself, that all these division, political divisions were based on, was a fraud. And the, what he did is he found a word within the text that wasn't from that time period that the document wasn't written. So you start looking at things like that. Uh, another one was Pseudo Dionysius, was, he, Lorenzo Valla also said was a fraud. The Catholic Church didn't accept it a fraud until the 1800s, but again, they found evidence of something that was out of place, a word or two that didn't fit the time period the thing was written in. And you can go on, you can find all these things like that. But when you start looking at the, the, the war scroll, it doesn't read like a, a Gnostic text at all. It reads like something that was a product of late 1800s, early 1900s, idea of what Gnosticism ought to be, not what it actually was. Right. Okay. Now, a lot of scholarship has been done since then. And what and this may be relevant to today, wink, wink, nod, nod, is that what research has been done in the, the, the kind of the premier Gnostics were the Manichaeans and the Cathars. So when you read about, you, you, we as Christians and philosophers and things, we look at them and we we always see these dualistic principles. And so we kind of project onto them that that's what they were really about. And if you look at the modern research on what the Manichaeans were, a lot of what we project onto them nowadays is really a product of the 1800s. If, if you go back, for instance, a, a good example was everybody thought the Egyptian hieroglyphs were had to do with mystical qualities and mystical magic done by the Egyptians and things like that until Napoleon went down and sent people down to research him. One was Champollion. And they redeciphered that. That was really what the Rosetta Stone proved, yeah. is that they were able to retranslate that and found out that most of this mysticism 
was a product of the 17 and 1800s. It had nothing to do with what the, the, the actual hieroglyphs stood for. And I think what you've got going on here is a similar thing, where if you actually do the research, read the research on the Manichaeans, what really motivated them was a, a kind of obsessive compulsive disorder. What they were really fueled on was fueling them is that they would take things like thou shalt not kill and take them to their extreme, whereby you, you, you live your life in, in the expectation that you, if you to kill anything, it's a sin. Well, that didn't just apply to people or animals. It applied to microorganisms or whatever, you know, whatever ants or anything that was going on at the time. And it turned out the only way you could live that life was to declare yourself an elite, which they called uh, a perfect or a prefect. And then what you did is you hired underlings. Like the, like the perfectibilists. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we a lot to do with, you know, you, it was literally an elite class in society, which you hired what you might call slaves to go around and do your dirty bits for you. Um, so that's the real Manichaeans. Now, we as theologians and philosophers would look back at that and say, well, that's that's dualistic. That's it's it's paradoxical. You can't do it. But their philosophy really rose out of this idea that you could per find a life that if God if God was God, he would have produced something perfect like that. And so the only perfection they could find is doing away with reality altogether. Right. <clears throat> exactly. You know, and so and, and I think that thou shalt not kill was really mistranslated when it should have been thou shalt not murder. Exactly right. Exactly right. But so what you see is you see this obsession with trying to solve a problem that can't be solved. Right. That's the thing that that's the thing that motivated them. So now you look at some of these documents and I, you know, I maybe be the only one. Maybe I'm not a scholar enough to know. But it seems to me that the war scroll is not a Gnostic text. Or if it is a Gnostic text, it was something that was either fabricated to look like a Gnostic text of what they thought Gnosticism was over that time period, or it was something taken from another document. And if you look at that, it, that's precisely what it is. You can download different pieces and bits of the war scrolls. It's a document all by itself. Most of the things are bits and pieces. The war scroll where this is from is actually an almost complete document, which makes you a little bit suspicious there. What is the, and, well, here's a, there's a rabbit hole there. But before we hit on Fomenko. Um, I got another, I got a thing to lead to that. So let's, let's wrap this one up. Okay. All right. But what is the, the strongest, and, and basically, you know, before you started looking into this, you were, a little bit skeptical about, you know, my work on MKUltra or whatever. And then once we, once you had found all these connections between Seelisberg and the CIA. Yeah, you made a believer out of me. Yeah, it made everything connect. And then, you know, and then you realize the psychedelic revolution and the 60s counterculture, all of that is MKUltra. Well, when, but, let me add but one, let, one. Let me just say, though, but the first... As far as we can tell, so three days after the CIA is founded, they have this conference in Seelisburg, and their first act is apparently to fake the Dead Sea Scrolls with this group, the World Brotherhood, and uh, the Lasky uh, people, and, and these others So that I showed on screen in the, in the database a bit ago. But 
this attack and you know and we'll go into this more but it leads to Vatican II it leads to all of this other stuff and it leads to this crumbling of Christianity and this decay of society well what did MK Ultra do but the exact same thing years later so you know we start to see this multi-pronged attack that they're using from all of these different directions yeah and the thing is it's it doesn't just end there either because I had thought I had found something in Jules Isaac writing that was unique in that he was trying to show that there was evidence before he it was it, it was out of order it, it, he if you believe his datings of his manuscripts and stuff he's discovering the dead sea scrolls before they're discovered well there, there's something oddball going on modernism was trying to take over the catholic church at the time uh and that goes back to the mid 1800s uh there was a unfortunately in the catholic church You've got two Father Lagranges, and Catholics are constantly mixing these two people up. One Father Lagrange is a scholastic, he's a devotee to what we would call Logos uh, theology or philosophy. The other one is an out-and-out heretic, and he's proclaimed a heretic. He actually sets up base in the Ecole Biblique in Jerusalem, which is ultimately the discoverer. Uh, so-called, uh, the, the repository of the, ultimately of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But not only is he using that as a, as a place to so-called find evidence that his modernism was right, but he is also publishing things out of there that are questionable, and the Catholic Church is, you know, they're not, they're not happy with this at all. But by the time you get to the 1930s, there's a Cardinal Bay rising up through the Catholic Church. He's actually taking over the papal duties during World War II because the, the Pope, uh, I believe it was Pius XII, is actually more, uh, you know, you've got World War II going on. But what, what Bay does in the persona of Pius XII, he actually, he's... He, fa he writes a papal encyclical, and the purpose of the papal encyclical is to rehabilitate Father Lagrange's what was once heretical theology and present it as uh, scientific. So what surprised me is I thought, well, maybe uh, Jules Isaac was alone in, in predicting the Dead Sea Scrolls, where there's a document that was written by World War during or right before World War II. It's a papal encyclical Aflante Spiritus, where they also reference that because of the work of uh, Lagrange, is that they will, or Lagrange, as you would say, it, it they're actually fought, it's, it's proclaimed in the papal encyclical that they're going to find evidence uh, that the biblic Ecole Biblique is going to find evidence of that Christianity needs to be rewritten, or redone. And what better way of overturning Christianity than falsify a bunch of archaeological evidence? Well, and then we even saw, what, four months ago, the discovery of more new Dead Sea Scrolls that are going to rewrite history again. You yeah, know, and, and yeah. it's like it's really the only thing that they deal with that when they discover something or, or dig up what they planted, it's going to rewrite everything when, uh, you know, it, it's basically not like that with... Uh, any other uh, field, you know, you don't yeah. just you find something. You got to rewrite everything. Rewrite Christianity. Well, they're predicting where it's going to go before they release it. I mean, right. you know, 
Um, I'm going to, you know, my cat is, uh, I got to let him in or he's going to freak out. So keep talking and I'll be right back in about 10 seconds. All right. Well, that's, that wasn't shocking enough to me it is that I then started going through a thing that was referenced in my book was a book called When It Was Dark, written by Guy Thorne. And when I wrote the book, I was, I was, I, I really had never heard of the book When It Was Dark until after I was almost complete with it. And then the book, and I had to rewrite the book to make allowance for when it, for, for this, this book. And it always bothered me that when it was dark, almost to all the details predicted uh, archaeological evidence that would be found in Jerusalem that would overturn Christianity. Uh, it was striking. It was almost, and so I, I, at the time I wrote the book, I thought, well, that's, it's just an oddball book. Um, it's interesting that somebody had the same theory uh, and, and the synchronicity of it all was kind of frightening. But at, when I was done with it, I thought this, this has got to be more than a coincidence. So I started researching when it was dark and I found a treasure trove of oddball circumstances. Number one, when it was dark was not an oddball book at all. It was actually the first book that could be called uh, a bestseller. It, it, it had, they had published hundreds of thousands of copies of these things and disseminated throughout the world basically predicting that somebody is going to find fraudulent archaeological evidence and it would collapse Christianity until somebody proved that, was, that the evidence had been faked. So I started look, researching Guy Thorne. Uh, and a more oddball person you're never going to find anywhere. Guy Thorne is not his real name. It's his real name. I got another book here. I can maybe show you a picture of him. His real name is Sea Ranger Gull. Or Cyril, yeah. Yeah. And Cyril Ranger Gull is actually a big-time pornographic author. The, and he's member, a member of this group. Uh, well, it, it's the... Uh, not the despicables, but <laughs> they, 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 they're basically a bunch of degenerates who are into uh, oddball sex uh, stories. There's a lot of uh, homoeroticism going on in these stories. And one of the loose connectors to the, all this was, was uh, Oscar Wilde. Right. Uh, they call themselves the degenerates. Let's put it that. That's, that's the real name. And Dorian Gray type stuff. And yeah, uh, well, yeah. and and let's just give a little uh, let's go to Oscar Wilde here for a second, because we've covered him on the show before. And uh, so Oscar Wilde, uh, he writes picture of Dorian Gray mm -hmm. and he's a member of the British Hellfire Club. And then uh, on this side of the pond. Uh, Benjamin Franklin's brother, James Franklin, founds the American Hellfire Club. So there's, you know, this this same stuff is going on from the 1700s into more uh, modern 
times with uh, these same kind of people and the same kind of stuff. So uh, Guy Thorne or, or Cyril Ranger Goal is right in the, the mix of all of that. Yeah, and they're all working for this publishing house called Leonard Smithers, which it originally is they're originally dealing with all this kind of degenerate kind of literature. They have other stuff. They're kind of a, you know, what would you call the, the same kind of basic cheap novels that people pick up in grocery stores and think, right. you know, that right. kind of thing. But around the time Cyril Ranger Galt changes writes when it was dark, he clearly has an epiphany of some sort. And what he does is all of a sudden he changes direction. He changes his name to Guy Thorne. Uh, he, and eventually within years, he turns Catholic. And if you look up Leonard Smithers, it turns out Leonard Smithers pretty much had to go out of business because a lot of these people had turned Catholic all of a sudden. And what was your discovery or your thinking behind why they suddenly became Catholics? That, at some point, uh, Cyril Ranger Gull had to have some sort of epiphany. The question is, where would he have gotten it from? And it took a lot of me trying to figure out and make connections on all this stuff. But right, right before he writes this, he, he, he it, it, there's a guy who's a commandant in the French military. And he's at the center of this thing called the Dreyfus Affair. The Dreyfus Affair was probably the most controversial thing to happen in all of the 1800s, in that what it was was a Jewish military officer was, was, was uh, accused of espionage. And it came to all, who's actually spent, uh, I believe it was five years on Devil's Island and in solitude and all this other kind of stuff. And it was this tremendous, the Jews considered the basis of this was anti-Semitism. But at the end of the trial, I think he had two trials. At towards the end, it turns out that they declared that uh, Dreyfus was actually innocent, and they they found a guy who was actually a military French military officer named Commandant Esterhazy as being the real culprit behind falsifying this evidence. So what's really oddball about all this is the degenerates, Oscar Wilde, and all all these people go to France and smuggle Esterhazy out. And take him to Guy Thorne's house where he stays for months. In, in, and he's, as he's leaving uh, France, and while he's being smuggled out, he declares he's got the greatest story of all time, that he's got basically all these people uh, in, a, in, in a bad place. And he, eventually he's going to reveal this story that's going to change the world. He goes then to... Cyril Ranger Gull's house, Cyril Ranger Gull changes his name to Guy Thorne and he writes when it was dark. And and his best friend had been murdered, correct? Yeah. Uh, again, this is from about a year ago, so I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details on this. But it, it was the, the reason why is that right before Esterhazy gets exported out of France, his best friend is murdered. And so it's basically done. It's the conjecture is it was done to silence Esterhazy's that if he ever, if he ever spilled the beans, he would be murdered. Now, what evidence was there in uh, when it was dark that 
coincides with what we're discussing here? Did you find anything there? The oddest thing is actually the frontispiece piece is that they, you know, this is, this is written 1902, 1903, somewhere in there. There's actually a picture of a monument that was supposedly the proof that Christ had never existed, that it was a tombstone monument. And, and the thing was in 1902, 1903, they weren't really up to snuff and, you know, they have the digital photography and things like this somewhere. It looks like a very authentic piece of monument. So the question is, did they falsify this monument or is this an actual picture of something that actually somebody had fabricated? You mean, did they falsify the monument or the photo or? Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. But clearly something's going on. When, when you start looking into the Dreyfus affair, almost to a man, if you're Catholic, you believe it's part of a grand conspiracy. That you, you, you're pretty sure it's the Freemasons in conjunction with some fallen away Jews or something like that. The, the interesting connection to all this is that all the people that went to the defense of Dreyfus were people that had artistic and archaeological connections. Uh, the, it, all, it was a family, the Jewish family called the Rhinox, who actually had connections. They were the ones going around through France declaring whether something was a bona fide artifact or whether something wasn't a bona fide artifact. Um, and, and, and this so, is the same family that initially tried to fund the uh, the uh, Panama Canal. Yeah. What happened is that the France had, had built the Suez Canal, but believing that they could fund the Panama Canal, that they had the prowess to build that, they sucked up all the money out of the French treasury to to build this thing. And it was a fiasco. It was the United States that finally came in and solved it. But the Catholics in general, they, they put huge tax burdens on the average people in France. So what happened is the Catholics believed that they were milking, purposely milking the Catholics dry because all, all the people carrying the bonds were part, parts of the Rhinoch family and, you know, right. uh, that type of thing. Right. All right, so where do we go from here? How does it lead up? You know, so all of this ties into this well it goes essentially the Seelisberg conference is shortly after world war ii and they're trying to and basically christians and as we exposed a couple years ago on the show the the baron von sabatendorf uh was a muslim he founded the thule society the thule society founded the uh uh National Socialist German Workers Party, major leftist organization, and then that commits this massive genocide again, you know, across Europe and against Jews. But the Christians actually got the blame for that. So then uh, we see this the Seelisberg Conference. They're going to rectify things so that it never happens again, and basically blame the Christians. Well, let me make a speculation. And this is, like I said, I'm kind of in the middle trying to tie things together, and I haven't quite made it yet. But my speculation is, part of it is why this was such a testy affair in France, is most people don't realize, but at before the 1800s, the Catholic Church controlled was actually owned Italy. And it was, most of it was that they owned was called the Papal States. 
what there was is during the 1800s is this big pur purging of the monarchies of, of Europe. Uh, and the Catholic or connected ones and replacing them with other governments. Right. So, so Italy installed its own uh, emperor and shut, basically took all the papal states away from the Catholic Church, which they didn't even recover from until just before World War II, where Mussolini actually gave them back Vatican City. But all this was being shut down the, during that period, a lot of the popes would actually either have to seclude themselves in the Vatican, so other out of threat of arrest, or they would flee to other countries and set up, um, you know, shop at, on the run. The thing that makes this all interesting, why I'm speculating France was such a contestuous thing, is that what most people don't realize is that there was an auxiliary Vatican City in France, the, the Palace of Avignon, in France, and my speculation was being that there was the, the French military was actually on the Catholic side and trying to, to reclaim France, that Avignon, France would have been a perfect place for the Pope to flee to and set up shop, just taking it entirely out of Italy. Uh, yeah, most, most people don't even realize that the, that the Pope and the Vatican were under threat and that the Pope couldn't even leave the Vatican. Yeah. He, well, and then, then Avignon was basically a largely Jewish city. So it, even though the Catholic church didn't like the situation at the time, they, I think they full well had to know that were they going to go back to Avignon, they couldn't do it with, uh, with by dumping on all the Jews, they would have need some sort of blessing by the Jews. So I think it was, would have actually been protagonist advantage to spark a, co a controversy between the Catholic church and the Jews to base to, to topple the whole designs of moving the, the palace of Vatican City to the palace in Avignon. All right. So let's lead up to uh, Vatican II. Uh, can I go one other direction first? Sure. I, because we were talking about Fomenko. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So I want to I want to recapture that. <laughs> the oddball of this is I went if I'm right and I almost think I have to be to some extent, then when it was dark has to reveal some secret facts to it, whether purposely or accidentally. The most curious one of them all was the, the bad guy in When It Was Dark was named Konstantin Schaub, who was portrayed as a Jewish financier uh, in archaeological he had connections all over the place was wealthy uh he had connections to people and so what he had done is he had hired somebody to to, to fake a tomb and then present it as authentic so i started looking at the name schaub thinking well that maybe would be a key to some sort of 1800s fraud and that pretty much led nowhere. There was no connection to the name Schaub and Reinach or anything like that. So then I started looking at the name Constantine. And it's very odd that Guy Thorne would use the name Constantine because it's not really a Jewish name at all. It's a Greek name. What I did find is that there's a huge controversy that is brought up in the original, some of the beginning chapters of Fomenko's book. On you know, As we all know, Fomenko is saying a lot of history has been falsified. Right. Um, and so one of the main 
first things Flamenco talks about, and you're much more familiar with him than I am, and we've talked about that quite a lot. Well, you know, at one point he had agreed to come on the show, and then uh, a week before he was supposed to come on, I couldn't get any more responses uh, from, you know, from him via email. But I was in uh, email contact with him for some time preparing for the show. So there's two Constantines from the 1800s that play into this. One is Constantine Tischendorf. Constantine Tischendorf goes to uh, St. Catherine's Monastery in Palestine, which is, that monastery has literally been there since almost the beginning of Christianity. And he finds a document called the Codex Sinaiticus, which he, for some reason, he's the only one to ever seen ever in you know, these monks have been there for literally thousands of years and they've never seen this codex Sinaiticus, which everyone they're skeptical of it originally but as it starts gaining steam people start asking well where did this document come from well there's another constantine and his name is constantine simonides who was easily the the, the most prolific archaeological fraudster of the 1800s he claims to have fabricated the Codex Sinaiticus. Now, the Codex Sinaiticus, and I've got books coming on this, so I'm, this is just speculation. The Codex Sinaiticus is important in modern scholarship. This will get us tie us back into Vatican II, in that it leaves out the concluding chapters of St. Mark. So up until the Codex Sinaiticus, everybody was convinced that Matthew was the oldest gospel in the Bible. The Codex Sinaiticus is considered older because it leaves the resurrection of Christ out. So it's important whether it was a fraud or not. Right. No, and so what happens is nobody accepts it really as definitive until somewhere around Vatican II, where all of the Bible translations... Now, if you look and have either parentheses or something at the end of Mark saying this was not an authentic thing, it was something that was tacked on at a much later date, as proof by the Codex Sinaiticus. <laughs> right. So that's uh, the story. Now, whether you buy into it, I personally, I'm very skeptical that the Codex Sinaiticus is a real text. But I right. have, like well, you know, there's always an effort to undermine Logos, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, why wouldn't they fake the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why wouldn't they fake Codex Sinaiticus? On and on and on, you know. Well, and, and as we've talked, you don't have to fake the whole thing. No, but you have to fake enough of it. You know, you take right. from the Cairo Geniza Scrolls and other stuff, and you do a patchwork, and then you put it out, and then you claim, look, this rewrites history again. And then, you know, as we've seen in the last year and a half, most of the sheep will follow along with whatever they're told without, you know, investigating it and, and thinking it through for themselves. Well, and we, as we've talked about before and probably worth bringing up again is we always talk about the Calhoun rats where Cal a researcher, John Calhoun took rats and put them in a, a chamber where he kept increasing the population to see what happened. And, as you can imagine, these rats that eventually they reach a tipping point where their society falls apart through the anxiety. Right. And the behavior. Anxiety is a big motivator on that. You can see a similarity what the Manichaeans were doing, where 
you push society through an obsession, say, of not just killing, but environmental cleanliness or something, you push it to a degree that's unsolvable. You create a, a, a societal angst or under that societal angst is where these people are the most, uh, that, that's the, they're, they're weakest against propaganda. The, to, you, you can do what you want with them. So it's interesting, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, almost to a man, all the original scholars said, literally called the Dead Sea Scrolls a hoax. Right. Well, and you had sent me a, a quote um, about the Dead Sea Scrolls being a fake from one of the first Israeli scholars on it, and uh, I'm just trying to find it here. It's Solomon Zeitlin. Yeah. So. And Solomon Zeitlin and, is well. Now- he said, "Although I have already written on this matter, I believe that in order to grasp the entire hoax." And to steer clear of the sensational publish, uh, publicity, I should restate some of the facts. And that's from Solomon Zeitlin, Jewish Quarterly Review, July 1950. Right. And he's no pushover. He is considered the top expert in Second, Second Temple uh, Judaism. He is the top expert, and he declares them a hoax. <clears throat> and I, there's, actually doc, there's actually records, I don't know if I've included in the book, of them going around listening to the advocates of the Dead Sea Scrolls and laughing about them. They couldn't believe anybody could be that stupid to accept them. Well, and you and I had basically come to the agreement that Allegro believed that the whole thing was legit, you know, and Mm -hmm. Allegro was poking around and asking the most questions, and he does this whole archaeological search all over the the deserts of, of... Palestine and Israel and whatnot at the time, and he doesn't find a dang thing. So that's even more evidence that they were were yeah, faked. Well, yeah, and the evidence. I mean, well, I guess what I'm saying is, being you know, you know that the problems we have with dating these things that you can find paper to write them on, and you can't date the ink. It's impossible to date the ink. It's not that difficult to to fake some of these things. Right now. But the thing is, I'm still, I'm not a researcher in that sense. I can't authenticate any or de-authenticate anything. But the coincidences that surround this event, going all the back, way back to the beginning of the 1800s, it seems to me it falls directly into the designs of what we, the Catholic Church even called the modernists. That the idea that you could, you could create a religion, it, one of the theories you had, and I actually confirmed it last night, I was trying to prepare for this, is I found uh, a book written in the 1800s called The Gnostics uh, and Their Remains. And so we had speculated before that, that the Freemasons had actually derived their things from, remember, I forget his name, but the old man of the mountain, the assassins. Hassani Sabah. Yeah. And the book actually has a lot of evidence that that is precisely what's true. A lot of the Freemason Masonic rituals and stuff. I, I don't go- like being right about that, you know, because that's where we get the assassins and this whole line of Aleister Crowley and Timothy Leary and all of these guys that, you know, I exposed in MK Ultra. Uh, they were huge fans of this. So it's a continuation of that same thing. We're seeing the the same scenario from another angle yeah and what th- this book was from the 1800s and uh by a guy named cw king i think it was 
he specifically shows that the orders of degrees in Freemasons came directly from the assassins. And he has more proof than just that. The, the primary thing is that somehow all religions, the, the basic Sufic principle was the idea that all religions are only shadow of the real religion, which basically is that there's only one religion underneath. And that's this kind of affinity with God type religion that we're all brotherhoods. Everything's part of this massive brotherhood. And everything right. had well, you know, and 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 it, it it fits on a bumper sticker that says, uh, "Oh, you know these these uh, coexist bumper stickers that you see all over the place." And that's yeah, how that's a Sufic idea, right? And never mind that these beliefs are totally juxtaposed. Never mind that, for instance, you know, as I just exposed with uh, Lloyd De Young, that uh, anybody who doesn't agree with Islam, for instance, is a kafir and has to be subjugated or, you know, you, you know, you, you pay the jizya tax, which means the capitation tax. And if you don't pay the capitation tax, you're decapitated. All right. Well, and the thing is, it, I'm going to go back to this little pamphlet again. Yep. They precisely say in the pamphlet what they're about to do, that they want to reduce re, uh, Christianity to religion just based on pure love, 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 love. And this uh, that we should all be living in this world of just love and we can do away with logos. We can do away with anything else. The thing that convinces me is not so much that at this point that I can find a direct line of genesis of this, but all the details and all the mass amount of coincidences that you start finding in all this, you know, going from Oscar Wilde to bestsellers to Look in Life magazine, who literally say during the 1950s and 1960s, they're publishing this stuff for, you know, consumption. Uh, it's surprising to me that nobody looked skeptical at any of this. It's right in Life magazine. It's right in Look magazine. Uh, and they're, they're bearing their cards at the time, but it was just accepted as that, well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. So, and we're getting uh, close here to Vatican II. But before we do, what I want to bring up, so, and I've met... Professor Robert Eisenman a couple of times, but without him, the Huntington Library out in, in Huntington, California, which is basically Pasadena, California, uh, without him, the Dead Sea Scrolls never would have been released, and he's considered one of the Dead Sea Scrolls experts on this stuff. And uh, interestingly, Robert Eisenman, you know, and he's a professor down at... Uh, uh, University of Long Beach or Cal State Long Beach. Uh, yeah, Cal State University Long Beach. But here is this guy that he was at the Beat Hotel with Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs and Peter Orlovsky and uh, Gregory Corso and Brian Geisen and all of these, these guys that later ended up being part of MKUltra. Right. And, you know, so I've, you know, I, I came across a, a book of uh, Eisenman's and his poetry, and in the beginning of the book, he's talking about his time at the Beat Hotel, and that was a big, like, you know, what the heck. But what's interesting about this is Robert Eisenman does some carbon dating on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and are you ready for this audience? With none other 
than my former co-host. <laughs> and uh, so we see that right here. And so suddenly, somehow, redating, uh, redating the radiocarbon dating of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here's my former co-host. And then uh, to give uh, street cred, Eisenman puts his name on this document. Now, you know, I mean, and, and of course, my former co-host had written the Caesar's Messiah thing that we since have realized is nonsense. But, um, you know, it, it's just, it's a neat package of, I don't know if you could call it neat. It's a, a dirty package of bullshit, you know. Well, if you're going to falsify something, you, I mean, me and you or somebody else, we can have philosophical debates till the sky falls. But what better way is just interject fake archaeological evidence. Right. And the average person can wrap their mind around that, say, well, if it's fake, it's fake. Right. But they got it. You know, they've they've got to continue this on because of Vatican II. So let's go there. Right. Well, what they, they're doing is at Vatican II, they're, and I really think Vatican II doesn't start when they say it starts. It really starts going all the way back with this Father Lagrange, where he's the original modernist. Uh, there's modernism going on in the guise of Voltaire and different people. What surprised me is when you get to the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, all these people, aside from uh, Allegro seemed to have French connections, French modernist connections. And Allegro was, I think, the only one that wasn't French, and he was, of course, uh, British out of the University of Manchester. All right, and he's got and, problems with it all. And yeah, and he's he's uh, well, and he's constantly butting heads with the entire rest of the crew until they eventually kick him off and replace him with uh, John. Uh, oh, I forget John. What's his name? But, uh, you know, so, and Allegro was working on his, he was... The guy he, that went nuts. The, uh, <clears throat> yeah, what was his name? I can't think of it right now. John, uh, I think it starts with a G or something like that. Now I'm going to have to go back and, uh, oh, it's driving me crazy now. I hate it when I can't yeah, think of it. That's the hardest part about this for me is remembering all the names. Yeah. So here's Allegro, and he's one of the original eight scholars on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then they replace him with John something or other. I can't think of it, and I'm not seeing it here in the database, so we'll drop it and move on. But you go back to the 1800s. That's what shocked me even last night. We decided we are going to do this, so I tried to do a little background research. This book of Gnostics and their remains basically is... is at, in the middle 1800s, is already talking about this Sufic principle. Well, if, if you kind of strip this all away from all the archaeological or not archaeological evidence, what they're really, Vatican II is really kind of the resurrection. What he's talking about in all this stuff was what's unique to this type of Gnosticism is the idea you had Gnostics, you had maybe early Egyptians and stuff like that that were worshiping stars and moons and different things. But like, but the idea that a Gnostic truth somehow was somehow redemptive was something that's clearly of the 18 or 1900. It's not part of the original Gnostic thing. It's the, not, the original Gnostics were, uh, and then there's a date on Gnosticism too. And we know the date, the date on Gnosticism about 
180 AD. So why are they going back these texts that are supposed to be 180 BC, even though we have a real date? But in the 1800s, he's talking about even before Vatican II, even before that, that what they're trying to do is to get this Sufic principle uh, that Freemasonry is kind of built around and has adopted, that there's this one world brotherhood. And that's the only purpose of religion and that there's something redemptive about having this world brotherhood. So you take original Christianity, the redemptive feature was Christ himself. Now they're replacing that with the idea that this love, this world brotherhood somehow is going to redeem you right. by joining it. Well, and, and so, so they do this with the Vatican II and with the rewriting of Christianity and taking it from a Logos-based religion into this love sort of communist thing. And they do that just in time for the 60s psychedelic summer of love revolution. So they basically start, you know, they repackage it and put it back out there. And then suddenly everybody thinks that Christianity is not about logos or truth is God, but about peace, love, and microdot, you know? Well, and plus they're also invoking critical theory, I'm trying to be careful here, uh, critical theory as a way, we, we kind of date that as if it's a modern thing, but the fact of the matter is critical theory was basically psychological warfare that the Jews developed before and during World War II to fight back against the Nazis who were exterminating their race. So somehow during and after World War II, they take this critical theory and they weaponize it and direct it as a tool of Marxism and which is not really what it was originally invented, you know, developed for. It was basically a way of, of uh, using psychologic psychology to protect the Jews in Germany. But it comes over here as part of the Frankfurt School, and the Frankfurt School uh, develops it, and it becomes wedded to the educational system. Now it becomes a bit as if it was something that just was developed yesterday. It wasn't. Right. So, uh, all right, so what was the impact on the Vatican with all of these discoveries? I mean, we've just discussed some of it, but what really happened to, uh, you know, and not just the Vatican, it happened across the board to Protestant Christianity as well. Yeah, the way, where, where Rome goes, everyone eventually follows, at least in mainstream Christianity. Uh, what's surprising to me is I probably have done more research than most people on Vatican II. None out of all the people that are actually even criticizing Vatican II, none of them have landed on, to my knowledge, of what the real problem was. So most people of Vatican II, even the conservatives, said, well, Vatican II was well-intentioned. It just ended up wrong, and we ended up with the wrong architecture and we ended up with the wrong music but if we just twist this and fix that we'll be back again that's not the case because the the real problem was that we've we've interjected this sufic principle into religion nowadays and i would say even into modern politics that somehow the idea of having a redemptive world brotherhood is somehow going to save the world or save you or something well that do, I, do you remember in my series with lloyd we even you know, we had even discovered and exposed on in that series that the Sufis were behind all of this. And I remember I was driving up to uh, 
Tahoe with my son and I'm having this long phone call with Lloyd and I'm like, you know, I think there's something big to this Sufi thing here. And then here we are uh, a couple years later still looking at the Sufis as possibly being the uh, top of the, you know, the tip of the iceberg with this stuff. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have admitted that before last night, but this really? book was that, I mean, I knew there was connections there, but I'm, I'm always kind of holding out for something solid. Yeah. And the book I found last night, I consider pretty solid. Well, you know, so what we had discussed in the series with Lloyd was that, uh, you know, and so generally we think of this, uh, sophism coming from Sophia and, you know, whatnot, but, you know, Sufi, sophism. So these are, are essentially the, the, the group of the, uh, the sophists, and they're going to have all of these, these pawns in these different groups doing their deeds in front of them. And then meanwhile, they stay behind the scenes as this peaceful group, and nobody even looks at them as, you know, the, the perpetrator really behind it all. You know, yeah. The, oh, the, and, and and I've still got books coming, so we can have you revisit this at a future time when I get more solid on some of this stuff. But the idea is going all the way back to Voltaire and all these. The, the idea that, and I think there's some some good parts of the idea of freedom and liberty and all that stuff that was pushed by the French government. But there's also this side that goes from just being a fairness in politics to being some sort of redemptive thing somehow, where it basically jumps the shark. In, into into something a, a form of mysticism yeah one of the things this book maintained uh was that and different ones i've been finding a little bit of evidence for is that the freemasons really were robbing manichaeanism of all their symbolism and all their different things but really what was under them was not so much of a conspiracy to overturn everything but it was, it was a a method by where, whereby the nobility and the monarchies and the sovereignties of Europe could really kind of manipulate the masses. Uh, and I think that to this day, that's, you know, one of the big problems I think in anything that we're having right now is in time periods past, we didn't know when people were lying to us. We had to do a lot of research and luckily get enough books and stuff, but almost anybody can research just about anything these days. The problem isn't so much, it's almost too much data to, to trying to discern which is the real stuff and the fake stuff. Right. And people, most many people uh, still don't grasp that a contradiction is always a liar and error. And that's where you need to dig. And right. I, you know, I still hear people say, oh, well, you know, we'll just have to, it's a matter of differing opinion here. And it's like, well, no, it's not. I've done all of this research that you refuse to read. And until you read it, you know, your opinion doesn't mean a damn just because you believe something that you've never researched. And people now <clears throat> think that their emotions and their unresearched opinions are just as valid as somebody who's got all of the primary documentation there to present, present on a subject, you know, and I, I know this is a principle of you, but it's, it's a principle of me is, when you want to learn about something, when you want to learn really what was behind something, the doorway is the contradiction. Absolutely. That, every single time. Every time. The door, anything you want to really understand, don't believe all the hype. 
go through the contradiction and try to yep. resolve it. I don't know how many times I've said on this show, and I appreciate you calling it a doorway, but <clears throat> it must be hundreds, thousands of times that I've said, whenever you see a contradiction, that's where you dig further down in exactly. until there are no more contradictions. You're left with the truth and you have that aha epiphany moment. I've got it. You know, and, and that's not that's where I'm not at yet with all this Dead Sea stuff. I mean, I was at it when I wrote the book and the book is complete in that sense. Uh, and I had that aha moment, but it left too many things trailing that I have. I cannot reconcile all these contradictions. But at some point, as I've, we've talked about tonight, the, the depth and breadth of the contradictions all to be all seem to be lining up towards some sort of conclusion like we've been having, uh, that this is an orchestrated thing. Uh, it was purposely designed to renovate Christianity into some, just a, a, a piece of this world religion. You know, even in talking about Logos, one of the biggest things I would say problems is that originally you had this thing called the Nicene Creed, which used the word substance. You know, that the term substance and essence in the creed literally were logos terms. But by the time you get into the 1970s and 80s, most of the mainline churches, the churches that do use the Nicene Creed, have replaced the word substance and essence with one in being. Yeah. Well, that's that's a Sufic principle. Orfeo in the uh, chat says, uh, non-contradiction leads only to God. Uh, that that's that's very insightful isn't it yeah because you know and then it's you know you realize that logic is the art of non-contradiction logic brings you to reason or you know what's reason logos what's logos right. truth what's logos god so yeah i mean it's yeah, yeah. it's very insightful yeah. so thanks for that or or uh orfeo uh Treshula. Yeah, that's his Gnome de plume. So hopefully we've got enough stuff I've thrown out there that maybe other people would be sort of curious and yeah, engage the battle a little bit and see where it ends up. Yeah, well, you know, and just start digging around into the contradictions out there. But, you know, and it's like here, you know, 10 years ago, I kind of considered myself a Dead Sea Scrolls expert. I'm still, for disclosure, the publisher of John Allegro. And even though I've stepped away from, you know, believing in his uh, his conclusions with that, and and you and I had even had a conversation some, some months back about how, you know, he ended up taking such a, a nosedive in, uh, you know, in his life and stuff because of what had, what, he believed was discovered in these Dead Sea Scrolls, and initially he was a Methodist minister and a uh, and a chaplain on uh, on a ship for the British Royal Navy. So, well, but to his credit, though, he was honest enough to unplug at that point. The problem you have in churches these days, even there, there was a definite. I would say the biggest change in the church, especially being connected to the seminary at the time, was nine eleven. There, there was a healthy skepticism of all this stuff up until 9-11, at least by some people. But once 9-11 hit, the, everybody was 
it just became perfunctory. Nobody questioned anything anymore. They were just all holy. If you if you're applying for orders, it was you, you were just holy and everybody thought of you as holy. Before then, there was people that would question these things and say there was something went on in the 1960s that screwed this whole thing all up. Uh, and I, I, it, it's, it'd be nice to invigorate or reinvigorate that healthy skepticism that, because you're not going to get to true Christianity in the path most are taking right now. Correct. I 100% agree with that, and that's the purpose of that, and that's why there's over 43,000 different churches today, wow. you know, which is absurd. Well, that should be evidence in itself. Look at the scattering that happened after the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah, even, even you know, I have an Orthodox uh, monk who's a friend of mine, and he said, you know, I don't care where you went to church in the 1940s, 1950s, they maybe weren't purely Catholic or purely this, but they all believed in essentially the same thing. They, their expression may be in a, been a little bit different. But once you get to Vatican II, the, the idea of another term in the Nicene Creed and, and other things was the idea of universal. So universal at one time was the very word Catholic. And the very word Catholic is a, is a contraction of Greek words, ka, I think get this right, katho ecumenikos which literally means one truth for everybody. Yeah, well... Okay, and, now you now they change the meaning of universal. Now universal is we're all part of one big club. Yeah. Well, and there is only one truth when you get it, and so that's why they've promoted all of the quantum physics and yada, yada, yada that I've exposed for a decade now, literally, you know, and uh, to make people think that there's multiple realities, you can't know the truth, everything is primacy of consciousness, and truth is arbitrary, and yada yada, so people are just lost, and uh, and now... Well, I, would, I would say modern physics is literally paradox is truth. Yeah, well, well said. That's I'd agree with that, yeah. You know, I interviewed back in 2011 David Harriman, uh, who wrote the... Uh, philosophic corruption of physics and uh he just goes through and exposes all of the you know basically what they do is they build quantum physics on quicksand and then keep going you know you start with a false premise and you keep building on top of it and nobody questions these false premises that are one after the other and uh you know i got a lot of flack for for uh daring to suggest that quantum physics may be a big pile of crap, right? No. And but when you when you realize that you know that non-contradiction leads only to God and logic, you know, that's this is why they took logic out of schools in my opinion because logic leads you to truth which leads you to God. And so it all leads that direction. So now, you know, emotions are, are just as valid as, uh, as facts and provable truth now, right? So, so what, you know, if we're led through emotion, what is the end result of that stuff? It can only be down. And it's like, uh, so you and I have done, both done interviews with uh, Kieran recently, and she took a, a little clip out of my interview with her last week if there is no reality there is no god if there is no god there is no truth if nothing is true everything is permitted yep so where are we now 
and and pretty soon it's going to be, you know, you can only see like Sodom and Gomorrah type stuff on the horizon, right? And and much worse. Well, than that. I've, I've got a secret thing that I haven't really expressed too much um, that I think sort of answers it all. Back in the early scholastics, they had a thing called Occam's Razor. Yep. Which which everybody gets wrong. It's they say simpler is better, but Occam's Razor really says you can't simplify things past necessity that you, you there's a bottom limit to how far you can simplify things but then you 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 end up with a heisenberg uncertainty principle and later on you get Gödel's incompleteness theorem which kind of is heavy and all this stuff but my theory is that all these things are just more exotic versions of a simple concept and the simple concept is if and i think the jews got it right off on the right bat is that if you dig too far you just end up the name you there's a reason why in ancient Judaism the name of God was unspeakable. And I think that as you get too close, it be it the human mind just can't comprehend it. And I think where we start, we dig down, we end up in these paradoxical things. We're we're reaching a level of incomprehension. It doesn't mean that paradox actually is truth or anything. It just means we've dug too deep. It's that you'll never know that. And instead of like Nietzsche getting syphilis and going crazy, you just step back and relax and let it go and enjoy yeah. the ride, I guess, at that point, right? Yeah. Well, leave it for another time. Maybe some other time they'll have more information. But no matter where you go and how deep you go, one of the principles of, of Logos and, and scholasticism was underneath all of this is what they called prime matter. And the very definition of prime matter is incomprehensible matter. Leave it at that. I yeah. guess. All right. Well, uh, so this is my first show in 10 months in a week. I've got to move next week in about 10 days. I'll figure out if I'm going to do a show next Tuesday or not. We'll see. I've enjoyed taking a break for a while, but, you know, it was time to get back to it. So uh, this may be the last time with this lovely scenery behind us, but uh, so we'll figure something out and, and see what we're going to do in the meantime. But it's uh, good talking to you as always, Steve. You're always insightful and always have, you know, great information to share. And Our uh, points are you know, converging. <laughs> they certainly are. Isn't that interesting? You know, you, who, whoever would have thought that the Dead Sea Scrolls and Christianity and MKUltra would all come together? And the names are there. I mean, you can't. Yeah, for sure. Can't deny it. And, uh, you know, thanks to uh, those uh, who who uh, uh, donated to the show tonight. Uh, Lee McCamey uh, gave two donations. Thank you. And uh, Lex Van Man, I greatly appreciate it. And uh, the links for supporting the show are down in the show notes. And you can also... Uh, Send Cash App, uh, Dollar Sign, Logos Media, or, uh, you know, go to, uh, what was it, Patreon slash LogosMedia.com, support the show. Steve, where can they get your books? Uh, most of the links are, are in there, uh, in the show notes from last year. I don't know if you've changed them again or anything. but I haven't changed anything, but you can still email me. It's, I, everybody's kind of dried up in this last year, but I'm still here. If I'm more than willing to share uh, and I got to congratulate and welcome back again, because I know you've been sorely missed by a lot of people. Well, you know, it's it was just, you know, 12 years of it. And when YouTube pulled the plug on uh, 
the channel the day after my 12th anniversary show. It was just like, you know, need a break from this. 12 years, I needed a break. So, I think there's a lot of work to be done here yet. And I'm not, one of my fears is that in modern politics, all these things will get resolved and then we'll just let, we won't, we'll quit digging deeper, I guess. Somewhere all the, all the present day stuff, we're, we're going to get beyond it at some point in time. Things are going to come together, but even that's a bit of an illusion. We still need to, we still need to right a lot of wrongs. Yeah. I, I have to keep this muted. My new next door neighbor across the way here has a Hellcat and they just fired that up a Dodge Hellcat. So every time they start the engine the whole the whole neighborhood uh shakes and and rattles along with it so but i you know I, I, is that a good place to wrap it up i think that's that's a great place to wrap it up all right well until uh next time steve and uh thanks all for your support and love and uh welcomes back and all of that i greatly appreciate it and we'll see you next time and no i didn't get taken out no i didn't get murdered or anything like that and i do appreciate all of the emails from people over the last uh 10 months checking in on me and the phone calls and stuff like that so thank you and much appreciated and much love everybody and until next time